All right, well, if you haven't already done so, you can turn over to Isaiah uh, chapter uh, 25, where we're going to find ourselves today. But before we do that, the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period, and he spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. He spoke, first of all, a message of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion against their covenant with God would come at a cost, that God was going to use the great empires of Assyria and after them Babylon to judge Jerusalem if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. But that announcement was combined with a message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all of his covenant promises, that he would send a king from David's line to establish God's kingdom, remember 2 Samuel 7, that he would lead Israel in obedience to all of the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai, remember Exodus chapter 19. And all of this was so that God's blessing and salvation would flow outward to all of the nations, like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's this hope that compelled Isaiah to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel in his day. Now, the book has a pretty complex literary design, but there's one simple way to see how it all fits together. Chapters 1 through 39 contain three large sections that develop Isaiah's warning of judgment on Israel. And it all culminates in an event pointed to at the end of chapter 39, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But in chapters 1 to 39, there's also a message of hope that after the exile, God's covenant promises would all be fulfilled. And chapters 40 to 66 pick up that promise of hope and develops it further. In this video, we're just going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. The first main section focuses on Isaiah's vision of judgment and hope for Jerusalem, and it begins as Isaiah accuses the city's leaders of covenant rebellion, idolatry, injustice, and God says he's going to judge the city by sending the nations to conquer Israel. Isaiah says that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that's worthless in Israel in order to create a new Jerusalem that's populated by a remnant that has repented and turned back to God, and Isaiah says that that's when God's kingdom kingdom will come and all nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem and learn of God's justice, bringing about an age of universal peace and harmony. Now, it's this basic storyline of the old Jerusalem purifying judgment into the new Jerusalem. This is going to get repeated over and over throughout the book, getting filled in with increasing detail. So at the center of this section is Isaiah's grand vision of God sitting on his throne in the temple. And he's surrounded by these heavenly creatures that are shouting that God is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah suddenly realizes just how corrupt he and his people Israel are. And he's certain that he's going to be destroyed by God's holiness, but he's not. God's holiness in the form of this burning coal comes and burns him, but not to destroy. Rather, it purifies him from his sin. And as Isaiah ponders the strange experience, God commissions him with a very difficult task. He is to keep announcing this coming judgment. But because Israel has reached a point of no return, his warnings are going to have a paradoxical effect of hardening the people. But Isaiah is to trust God's plan. Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and left like a stump in a field. And that stump will itself be scorched and burned. 
But after all of that burning, God says that this smoldering stump is a holy seed that will survive into the future. It's a small sign of hope, but who or what is that holy seed? The rest of this section offers an answer. Isaiah confronts Ahaz, a descendant of David and a king of Jerusalem, and he announces his downfall. God says that it's the great empire of Assyria who will first chop Israel down and devastate the land, but there's hope. Because of God's promise to David, he's going to send after this destruction a new king named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Emmanuel's kingdom is going to set God's people free from violent, oppressive empires. And Isaiah describes this coming king as a small shoot of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. It's this king that's the holy seed from chapter 6. And the king is going to be empowered by God's spirit to rule over a new Jerusalem and bring justice for the poor, and all nations will look to this messianic king for guidance. His kingdom will transform all creation, bringing peace. Now, you finish chapters 1 through 12 with a pretty good understanding of Isaiah's message of judgment and hope. But when will this all happen? Isaiah saw another empire arising after Assyria, and that's Babylon, who would also attack Jerusalem and actually succeed in destroying it. And that brings us into the next sections of the book. So first, we have a large collection of poems that explore God's judgment and hope for the nations. We learn, first of all, of the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. Isaiah could see that Assyria's world power would one day be replaced by the empire of Babylon, a nation even more destructive and arrogant. Babylon's kings claimed that they were higher than all other gods, and so God vows to bring Babylon down. And not only Babylon. Isaiah goes on to list Israel's neighbors, accusing them all of the same kind of pride and injustice, and he predicts their ultimate ruin. But remember, for Isaiah, God's judgment is never the final word for Israel or the nations. And that leads into the next section with a series of poems that tell a tale of two cities. There's the lofty city that has exalted itself above God and become corrupt and unjust. This city is an archetype of rebellious humanity, and it's described with language that's all borrowed from Isaiah's earlier descriptions of Jerusalem and Assyria and Babylon all put together. This city is destined for ruin, and one day is going to be replaced by the new Jerusalem, where God reigns as king over a redeemed humanity from all nations, and there's no more death or suffering. These chapters are the climax to this section, and it shows how Isaiah's message pointed far beyond his own day. It was a message for all who are waiting for God to bring his justice on violent, oppressive kingdoms and bring his kingdom of justice and peace and healing love. The following section returns the focus to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. And first we find a whole bunch of poems where Isaiah accuses Jerusalem's leaders for turning to Egypt for military protection against Assyria. He knows this will backfire. And Isaiah says that only trust in their God and repentance can save Israel now. Which gets illustrated by the following story about the rise of Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah predicted, the Assyrian armies come and try to attack the city. And so Hezekiah humbles himself before God and he prays for divine deliverance, and the city is miraculously saved overnight. But Hezekiah's rise is immediately followed by his fall. So he hosts a delegation from Babylon, and he tries to impress them by showing everything in Jerusalem's treasury and temple and palaces. It's clearly an effort to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah hears about this, and he confronts Hezekiah for his foolishness. He predicts that this ally will one day betray him and return as an enemy to conquer Jerusalem. 
And we know from 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 that Isaiah was right. Over a hundred years later, Babylon would turn on Jerusalem, come and destroy the city, its temple, and carry the Israelites away to exile in Babylon. And so all of Isaiah's warnings of divine judgment in chapters 1 to 39 lead up to this moment. He's shown to be a true prophet because it all came to pass, like he said. But remember, the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Jerusalem and bring the holy seed and messianic kingdom over all nations. And it's that hope that gets explored in the next part of the book. But for now, that's what Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 are all about. So for those of you that missed our study up until now, you're up to speed in eight minutes. Isn't that amazing? So that if you're not familiar with it, that is one of many videos produced by a team called The Bible Project. Just Google it and uh, lots of stuff, lots of education there. Their, their thing is to take the Bible storyline and the particular books of the Bible and put them into graphic form like what you're seeing and summarizing them. Um, Isaiah is a big book, and in eight minutes he just did what the first half is about. And, and I think they do a stellar job summarizing everything so you don't get lost in the weeds. Okay. So any questions on that, especially for those of you that are new, that made sense? That's kind of where we've been. We haven't done the last section, the very last section, 28 to 39. We're not there yet. We're in the 13 to 27 section, as you can tell from your notes. Um, but anyway, Google it, check it out. They actually, what, what he, uh, is being drawn here is a poster you can actually buy that poster from them if, if you want to, you know, decorate your kitchen with Bible pictures like that. Uh, go for it. But uh, would highly recommend uh, uh, those resources to you. Okay. All right. Um, Rusty, could you turn that volume control down, please? And um, uh, Rob, could you turn the volume control down, please, on the wall? Thanks. You don't need to hear me. Uh, just turn it all the way down, please, sir. Thank you. All right, so Isaiah chapter 25, and uh, as you saw, we're, we're in this section now uh, where we've had the judgment on the nations, we've had the judgment over the whole world, and um, as, as Isaiah has envisioned this remnant being saved, this, this restoration where the king uh, comes and rules, uh, he erupts into song. And just to give you a little sense of the context, we need to get a running start as we come to Isaiah chapter 25, because... We've all slept this week, okay? So look back at chapter 24. Okay, this, this is the end of the world. This is the final judgment. And remember, the end of that section in chapter 24, uh, verse 21, ends like this. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together like prisons in the dungeon. They will be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. And then the, and the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. And here it is, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. As we saw in the video, that's what all this is moving toward. God's judgment, his message of judgment, but the message of hope that God will preserve a remnant, that the Messiah is coming. He will call men and women to himself. And uh, for those who trust in him uh, at that final judgment, he will then rule and reign um, over the nations on Mount Zion and in the nation of uh, and in the city of Jerusalem. Interesting the geography here. Um, we just got back, as you know, from Jerusalem. Uh, it is amazing that that little piece of property uh, is so contested and so uh, fought over 
and, uh, and you know, Dave and Cece know they've been to Israel recently, that even today there is a tension between different people groups, different religions over this little piece of property. It's like, why is everybody wound up about the, about the land? Uh, and it's because biblically and prophetically that territory has massive significance. And of course, if you know uh, Islam, in, in the Muslim religion, uh, they also believe that that area is holy ground and significant. And that, that's what creates a lot of the tension today. But I want you to see here that even in the future, that, that area is significant because that is where the Messiah comes uh, to rule and to reign on that day. Okay, so with that in mind, Isaiah anticipates uh, this day. He's announced the coming judgment, but also the the restoration of the people and the rule of the Lord of hosts on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And it's interesting because in chapter 25, verse 1, something happens. Uh, Isaiah has been announcing judgment. He's been talking to the nations. And I want you to look at chapter 25, verse 1, and tell me what changes in the language. I'll read it to you, and you, you tell me what happens. O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. What just happened? What's that? It's first person. Do you see that? He's been announcing things in a, in a third person fashion, judgment of what God will do. And here, it's like he puts all that aside and he says, I'm going to respond to what I've seen and what I've heard personally. And this, this reminds us, uh, what, is, what is the goal? What is the end when we hear God's word, when we hear a sermon, when we hear a podcast, when we read a blog, when we're working through a Christian book, all of that is, is aiming to terminate at a common goal. And, and what is that? Glorifying God. Yeah, it, it's, it's a doxological purpose. It's a worship purpose that God does not intend ultimately for us to just be good students of the Bible or knowledgeable about his theology, that those are merely means by which we can better think about him and glorify him and uh, worship him. And that's Isaiah is, de- you see him demonstrating that here? He, he's modeling this for us. Okay, so let's just look a little bit uh, at, at this, okay? Oh Lord, you are my God and I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. So, so look there and what is, um, just in verse 1, tell me, what is the reason that Isaiah is stopping to thank God and praise Him and worship Him? Yeah, he's fulfilling His Word. What, what has God just done in the previous chapter that demonstrates fulfillment of His Word? He's going to reign, okay? We see the fulfillment that God will one day reign on the earth, okay? Through the Messiah. What else? He's executing judgment. Remember the prophets? What was the refrain of the prophets? How long, O Lord, are you going to put up with this? Right? The psalmists say the same thing. You and I say the same thing, right? How long is God going to let this thing play out into wicked oblivion? And Isaiah 
is caught up in song because he sees a vision that God is going to one day say, stop, enough. And he brings justice. Okay? What else? What else do you see here that Isaiah might be referencing from the previous chapter about uh, what has God been faithful to do? Preserve the remnant. You can imagine in Isaiah's day that, uh, you know, he had cause for a major depressive disorder literally every hour of his ministry. Is God really going to do what he says he's going to do? Is, is he really going to preserve a, a, a people or is, is this, are we just going to run the car off the road and everybody dies? And, and yes, so he sees a remnant. He sees that God is true to his word. Remember the title of our study? It's seeing God in what? Judgment and and mercy and in redemption, right? And, and that's, that's a glimmer of God's redemption and his mercy, that God will preserve a remnant of his people. What else? What else do you see? Yeah. Isn't this interesting? So, so the first part of Isaiah's ministry, he's prophesying about all these things happening. And then God gives him this vision where he actually shows Isaiah how it comes to pass in history. And so again, yeah, he's showing him that, that these prophecies are not just dreams and hopes and threats, empty threats, but God actually accomplishes them in history, okay? And, and that's why, now, now let me ask you this. <clears throat> the times when you found your heart turning to the Lord in thankfulness, what are those times like? What, what causes that in your life? Trial? Okay. Humbling you? Yeah. See, Isaiah is having one of those moments where he's like, you know, it's like he's seeing the hand of God in a clear way. And it causes him to turn to the Lord in song and in worship. And like I said, we don't know if he's picking up his uh, telecaster here or what he's doing, but, you know, he writes this song, he erupts in song and praise as we do this. Okay? Now, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to look at verses 1 to 5. And remember, Isaiah is not just about the prophecies, and it's not just about uh, judgment, and it's not just about redemption. It's about learning and seeing who God is as we learn about him in judgment and in redemption. That's what the book's about. So we're going to do a little exercise here. And the, the people around you are going to be the people that, that are going to help you. You're going to work, work together if you're with family or friends or some people around you. Just, you know, whoever's at your table, I want you to look at those first five verses and I want you to answer these questions. Who is he and what he does, okay? What is, I, Isaiah is singing. He's crafting a song of worship and that song is full of theology. Who God is and what he does. And I want you to look there and tell me, what is the content about who God is and what he does? And we'll come back and we'll, we'll share with one another in just a few minutes. Okay, ready? Go. All right. How'd you do? Okay. And, and, and I heard some of you saying, you know, can we go beyond the first five verses? Um, you know, the intent is just the first five. But if you, if you have, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff in the whole chapter. So, okay. So we're looking at the, at the content of his song. What is it that he's all wound up about in singing about who God is and, and what he's done? What'd you come up with? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and not just notice, notice how he personalizes it. 
you know, we don't, we don't grow in a relationship with God when we keep him at an arm's distance. We grow in a relationship with God when we personalize our theology. So it's not just the God, it's my God, right? Okay, I like that. So that's good. He's my God. You'll see the psalmists do that also. Okay, what else? Tony. He's our refuge. Okay, so God has a plan. That's something that he does, right? Works wonders. And we're going to hear about what some of those wonders are here later on in the chapter, aren't we? Okay. Yeah. All right, good, 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 good. Judges justly. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he is worthy, right? He's shade from the heat. Uh, you, those of you that have read a Pallison's book understand you know heat is often a metaphor for the the trials and stresses of life right so he's a shade from that yeah he humbles the strong you know you look at this and you say why don't we sing songs like this is, is it this also in a in a applicational way models what music glorifies God right uh, you know the we, we call them, we, we joked back in the in the 90s about the 711 songs kind of the kind of popular in the Christian culture seven words repeated 11 times uh, you know and okay you know, the heart might be in the right place but um, look at this I mean this you squeeze a biblical song and it oozes with theology of who God is and what He's done and it and it's not it's not systematic theology sitting on a shelf that's distant it's personal theology He's my God He's my refuge He's He's my strength He will deliver me in my day of trouble right? and that's this models for us the sort of songs we we ought to be writing and singing even um, so you see this this is what He's all He's all wound up about and, and I wonder if if you're, if you're lacking in a heart that worships God in, in song, either audibly or, or in your heart, and you feel like, I'm just, I'm just not in the mood, or I'm just, you know, I feel like it's just not there, um, c- could it be that in part it's because you're not meditating on these things? I think what Isaiah is saying is when these things are the focus of your life and heart and when you're, you're mulling them over and you're thinking about them and you're processing them, singing is what you do. You, you don't, a Christian is not concocting singing or, or, or trying to you know, force singing. Singing and worship is a normal, natural response that God hardwires us to do. When we've, and I'll, I'll, I'll demonstrate this for you. How many watch college football this weekend? Okay, where's my Aggies? Uh, Aggies? Okay, all the Wallace boys just woke up. Okay, uh, there we go. Right, they're all they're all ready. They're in. And um, so, so let me just can I just ask you how they do this weekend? I wasn't paying attention. They did good. Okay, now did you watch the game? 
A little bit, okay. And, and tell me what your family was like as they were watching the game. Falling asleep, or, or was, or were you guys pretty into it? You pre- oh, yeah, okay, that's what I thought, okay. Anybody else into your, how did your team do this weekend? How'd your team do? It's a heartbreaker with Baylor, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I know, yeah, yeah. Some of us don't watch because it's better for our sanctification, but, uh, right. Yeah, see, see, you don't, when your team is winning, or if they're losing, no one has to said to you, says to you, maybe you need to stand up and talk to your TV right now. Maybe you need to help the refs. You know, maybe you need to get up off the couch and, 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 uh, you know, there, there's a joke in our family about, you know, is it, is it vacuuming that we do? Cause you just, you can't deal with the stress. You, you go and you vacuum the room. Um, you, no one taught you to do that. You just do that. Why? Because you love your team. You're interested in your team. You, you want to see your team win because that's where you're focused, right? No one has to teach you to worship. No one has to teach you to sing. When your heart is set on these things and when you love your God and you meditate on who he is and what he does, worship is the automatic God-programmed response of your heart. And Isaiah helps us to see that. Okay. All right. Back to back to your notes here. Notice in verse six, as Isaiah is um, reflecting on the vision and he picks up his pen and perhaps his his lute guitar and and puts this together in a song and he he sings. Now, remember, this is this is Isaiah worshiping in his house. He's not out in the streets. He's not with the people. It's I. Right. It's 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 him alone doing this. He says in verse six, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all people's on this mountain. What's the mountain? That's Zion, right? That's the Temple Mount. That's Jerusalem. Uh, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples. Okay, so there's this banquet that Isaiah envisions. C- can you think of other places in Scripture that envision a banquet at the end of time? Yeah, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, Dave said Revelation, right? Talks about that. So we're not sure if they're exactly the same incidents, but the point is when God judges and when the Messiah comes to rule and when everything is at peace finally, you know what they do? They have a party. They do what you and I do. They, they do what we do. We're, what we're going to do next week in Thanksgiving, they're going to they're going to have a, a feast and they're going to enjoy time with one another and they're going to have a party. And that's that's what's going on here. When, when God's judgment finally comes and He redeems His people and the Lord Jesus rules on David's throne, uh, they have a, a lavish banquet. Now, this is not the first time that Isaiah has talked about this banquet. This is coming in the future, and uh, we see it as a, as a fruit of what's going to happen in the days ahead. Now, watch this. This appears to be the climax of Isaiah's song. Look at this. Verse 7. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. What is that? Yeah, if you if you look at it within the parallel, that that's that's the veil of death. What, what you think about it? What, what what sort of levels the playing field on all of humanity? We all die. 
And why is Isaiah so excited in his song? Because he envisions a day when God defeats death and puts it away forever. Look look at verse 7 or verse 8. He will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the approach, the reproach of his people from all the earth. Hold your place here. I want to show you where this gets fulfilled. Okay, just hold your place in Isaiah. Flip over first to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're, we're heading to Revelation, but we're going we're gonna to make a pit stop in 1 Corinthians 15 here on our way, okay? <clears throat> you know this. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has started this section of 1 Corinthians describing the gospel. And immediately he gets into the gospel and he focuses on the resurrection. And he says, basically, if there is no resurrection, you don't have any faith. There's no hope for you if the resurrection is not true. You remember uh, the Corinthians, partially influenced by the Jewish Sadducees that that, uh, rejected any idea of resurrection, partially influenced by uh, a secular Greek culture that didn't believe in an afterlife in this same way. And uh, so they they were tempted to believe that the resurrection was a myth. And so he's arguing in 1 Corinthians 15 for the reality of the resurrection, the, 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 um, the, the factualness of the resurrection. And then he gets to the, to the end of this section here. And uh, look at what he says as uh, we get to um, uh, his conclusion here, right? Uh, what, what is God going to do um, in that last day? We'll pick it up in, let's see, where should we pick it up? Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, right? Uh, For since by a man came death, so also came the, so through one man uh, also came the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God, uh, and Father, and he abolished all rule and all authority. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, here it is. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Verse 27, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put under subjection, it's evident that he is exempted from the one who put all things in subjection. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son also will himself subject himself to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Okay, so so the picture here is is one day what's going to happen. All enemies will be thwarted, including what is 26 calls the last enemy, which is death. And he says later on, where, O death, is your sting? As all things are conquered under Jesus' feet. Okay, so there's the promise that it's coming, just like in Isaiah. Now, watch this, watch this fulfilled now in the book of Revelation. Flip over to Revelation chapter 20. We'll go back to where we saw, uh, we looked at last week as we looked at the end of the world. Uh, this is the final judgment, right? And, uh, the great white throne judgment, as we sometimes call it. In Revelation chapter 20, uh, Satan is bound. Jesus is ruling for a thousand years, that's the millennial reign, that's, that's the reign of Jesus that Isaiah has talked about multiple times. And, uh, and here we see at the end of all of this, 
the fulfillment of what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians and what Isaiah has said in chapter 25. Verse 14 of chapter, oh, it's not, uh, verse 13 of, uh, of Revelation chapter 20, okay? And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Now, now, watch this, watch this, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. It's, it's hard to, to think about death as a thing. Death is a phenomenon that happens to all of us. But what is death? It's part of God's plan, right? Not originally. Death was the consequence of what? The fall and sin. So in this passage, when Isaiah and Paul in 1 Corinthians and now here say, we're taking death and we're throwing it in the lake of fire. We are abolishing death forever. What are they saying? They're saying the curse is no more, right? The curse has been reversed. It's, it's come to an end. And it's not surprising that in the very next verse, chapter 21, verse 1, what do we see? A new heaven and a new earth. We're right back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right? Where God creates the heaven and the earth. There's a fall. There's a curse. That's a parenthesis, so to speak, right? The curse comes in. Death comes in. Sickness comes in. The fall. God's plan of redemption works out. And then at the very end, what does he do? He brings all the judgment. He brings his redeemed to life. He takes death and the curse and ends it. And he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And we're right back there. And that's the storyline. Okay? So we see that uh, the death of death, right? You think of the old Puritan title, the death of death and the death of Christ. Great, great Puritan work that uh, expands on this. If you want to read more about how all this plays out uh, in, in Christology and in redemptive history. So on this mountain, God will swallow up the covering, that death covering, which is, uh, which is over all peoples. He will swallow up death for all time. And don't leave Revelation just yet. The Lord will wipe tears away from all faces. Does that sound familiar? Where do we see that? Are you still in Revelation? Look back at chapter 7. As we get a, a picture of heaven and uh, the those who inhabit it. And we see here in... the end of chapter 7, as we get a picture of the multitude uh, saved out of the tribulation now around the throne of God, verse 16 of Revelation chapter 7, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb is the center of the throne. The Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of water, of life, and God will wipe what? Reversing the curse, right? We, we mourn and weep and, and grieve because of the curse. You know, when, when you grieve, when I grieve, when we're sad, when we cry, when there's hurt and pain and sorrow, the, those are the effects of the fall and the curse from Genesis 3. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And what we see as Isaiah's prophecies become reality in the end times, and we see them in the Revelation, that God is progressively, systematically, and comprehensively, ultimately, reversing the curse. There is no sorrow. There is no pain. There is no death. There is no grief. There is no mourning. That what, what he calls the first things are now passed away. 
And we see that again, uh, the, the wiping away of every tear. We also see that uh, in chapter 21 in the new heavens and the new earth. Just listen to this, 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he, verse 4, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. Guys, I'm here to tell you, heaven isn't harps and halos. It's not, it's not being a, a, a chubby cherub on a cloud, you know, plucking a harp. I mean, that's boring. That, that's fantasy land. That's fiction. Heaven is God with us when you are perfectly glorified and everything that causes us sorrow and suffering and hurt and pain is gone. That's why we look forward to it. Uh, some of us need to refine our theology of heaven. That's right. You know, you think most greeting cards, it's like, who would want to go there? You know, uh, but we want to go here because we're all ready. We're all ready for the pain of this world to be done, aren't we? All right. So that's see, that's why Isaiah gets so excited. That's why he's praising God, because that that is something to look forward to. That's something to sing about. Remember what Jesus said, in in this world we have trouble, right? But we take courage because he has overcome the world and we see it fulfilled right here. Okay, now you can go back to Isaiah. The death of death in the death of Christ. Now, check this out. This is great. Verses 9 and following. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. I love this. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This, this is faith made sight, right? This is Hebrews uh, 11, right? That, that all these prophets, all these believers died without seeing these things fulfilled. And Isaiah says in this vision, it was worth the wait. It was worth hoping in these things. Can, can you, you know, you realize what some of these prophets went through and you go, I don't know if I would have done so well. But think of what some of them got to see. John got to see a revelation of heaven. Paul got to go there for a little bit. Couldn't talk about it when he came back. He got to go there. Isaiah gets to see redeemed humanity in a deathless, painless, sufferinglessness Suffering, yeah, yeah, without suffering, environment. And he says, you know what? If that's what's coming, it's worth it. It is worth it to wait on the Lord, to trust him in the midst of your affliction and my affliction and whatever else is going on in this broken world. It is worth it. And that's what he's singing. And, you know, we need to sing songs about that. We need to sing songs that remind us it is worth it. It is right to wait. On the Lord, because we know this is coming, and you know we get that gets blurry in the busyness and frustration of life, right? And you know, we, we saw, um, you know, Asaph, the worship leader, in, in Psalm 73, he's so caught up in the wicked prospering and the suffering, and God's not being good to Israel; it doesn't appear to be good. And Isaiah walks up to the cliff of his faith, or Asaph walks up to the cliff of his faith, and he contemplates jumping. Maybe it's not worth it. And one of God's provisions to help us to remember that he is worthy and it is worth waiting and trusting on him 
is a community of faith that gathers together and sings songs like this. If that's who he is, and that's what he does, and this is how it ends, what do you say? It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. See, songs are part of God's rescue plan to keep us from hopelessness and discouragement and thinking, well, maybe this isn't. Maybe this isn't where it is. So we wait on him. We trust him. And we we see what he is able to do. Verse 10. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. You you know why that's cool? Because two weeks ago I stood on that mountain. (laughs) Some of you have too. And God's coming back. And his hand will rest on that mountain. Look at this. And Moab will be trodden down. We go, Moab? What's Moab doing in this song? Well, if you understand how Isaiah uses language, Moab here represents all of the nations, all of the ungodly nations who have come against the Lord. Look at this. Notice here, we've got to catch up in the notes here. Notice here the transition with we, okay? So Isaiah is caught up in this song, and then what does he say? This is a personal song that he says, this is how it needs to be in the nations. It will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited. Now it's community. It's not just Isaiah in his bedroom. It's the whole redeemed nation that is singing this song. And you're going to see, just as a footnote, we'll see verse 26 Chapter 26 is the song of the nation. So we'll get to that in just a minute. So it goes from personal to collective. Uh, the mountain there, of course, is uh, Zion. That's Jerusalem. What's Moab? Moab represents the nations here. They will be trodden down in place as straw is trodden down in the water, the manure pile. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. And again, picturing that final judgment, the Lord will lay load his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unsaliable fortifications of your walls he will bring down. As uh, the men of old said, no weapon, forward, uh, no weapon forged against us will prosper, right? God will bring them down. He will lay low and cast them to the ground, even to the dust. You want it in short, God wins. And all those that belong to him win with him. Okay, now, now, watch this. So Isaiah's in his bedroom, he's caught up, he's writing this song. And you get the feeling that something changes. He's like, you know what, I can't keep this to myself. So it appears there's a, a scene change here, verse 26, chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. So remember, chapter 25 is Isaiah coming up with a song, singing to himself. Now it's like, this is not a song to keep to yourself. This is a song for the nations. Look at this. In that land, uh, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates. That the righteous nation may enter. Remember on the, on the little animation? The New Jerusalem, people from every tribe and tongue of nation redeemed, gathered together 
in worship. That's what this song is envisioning. Open the gates that the righteous may, may enter. The one that remains faithful. And here's that verse that many of us have memorized. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. That's, that's the... That's the meditation, that, that's the, the disposition of the heart of believers, isn't it? That our, our minds are in perfect peace because they're steadfast on the Lord. What do we do? We trust in the Lord God forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. He has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. He lays it low, he lays it low to the ground, he casts it to dust. The foot will trample it the feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless. And he goes on uh, in leading this song. These are songs, this is how we need to sing. This is how our community of faith needs to worship together, reminding ourselves of these truths, that this is worth it to wait on God. This is our future. The Lord wins, he redeems. There's no enemy that comes against him. And one of the ways that we keep that in our hearts, to keep our minds where they need to be, is we sing. We sing like this to one another. Okay? Put a comment in your notes. We'll come back next time, and we'll talk about that, that community song in chapter 26. Uh, Father, thank you for the vision that we've seen in Mr. Isaiah's song. Uh, we're grateful that he models for us why and how we ought to sing and, and your purposes. Thank you for the vision here of the future. Uh, that we can be distracted and discouraged by so much in our culture, but we know that these, these are not hopes and dreams. This is prophetic history that we've just read. Might we live in a way today? Might we minister to others? Might we sing and worship and share with one another like these things are true? And would you keep our hearts in perfect peace as we have steadfast minds that are set on a trust in you and your promises, resting in who you are and what you have done and what you will do. In Christ's name, amen.